God, we uh, thanks for the ways that you talk to all of us. Thanks for the way that you especially talk to us through the Bible, which we call your word. Because it's a way in which you show us what you're like. You show us your character. You show us how you relate to all kinds of people in the Bible. You show us how you encourage us, challenge us, even rebuke us at times. But we get to know who you are, God, by we read the Bible. So we pray that everyone here, we'll all will hear what you want us to hear and see what you want us to see. That comes up with the Holy Spirit. That's what he does. And uh, we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, some of you know, I used to teach a long time ago, junior high math, uh, seventh grade math, actually. I think I um, and uh, one time in class, we were doing fractions to decimals. Some of you might get anxiety right now. Like, you know, four-fifths equals one in a decimal form or whatever. And it was something that they should have learned in fifth and sixth grade. So I'm talking to students. Let's just review. And one of the kids is like, we've never done this before. I was like, sure, you did it in sixth grade. You know, you fraction the decimals. Oh, no, we didn't. And the whole class said, no, we didn't do it. I said, I'm like, who'd you have in sixth grade? Mr. Stoltz. None of you know Mr. Stoltz. He's probably dead by now. So, uh, Mr. Stoltz. I said, well, didn't he cover fractions of the decimals? No, he said it was too confusing. We're going to skip that part. <laughs> this is why America is way behind in math education, right? Yeah. It's too confusing. So, he said that. Oh, yeah, they're all, yeah, Mr. Mr. Stoltz said that. We were going to do this because it was too confusing even for him, so we just skipped the fractions of decimal section. I'm just like, oh, so I had to redo it all. But I have a confession to make because I pulled the Mr. Stoltz because there's part of Hebrews I wanted to skip. And I actually kind of skipped it a couple weeks ago because I thought, this is too confusing. It's too weird out there. Um, it's about a guy named Melchizedek. And I thought, okay, this is kind of like fraction the death. Can we just skip this? And I actually, I actually kind of convinced myself it was okay just to skip it. And I thought, this last week, I thought, okay, the Bible tells us that all the scripture is inspired. There's nothing in there that's not helpful for us. And sometimes things that we think are really confusing, they're not really that confusing, like fraction of death. It's not that confusing. It's just we don't understand the context. We understand the context. It makes sense. So this, there's a guy named Melchizedek that's talked about. My guess is some of you might ask for raising. They've never heard about Melchizedek before. He's not like a prime character in the Bible. He doesn't get like a you know, five-star billing anywhere. But he shows up in the book of Hebrews. And there's times when, I'm, when I was looking over the last few weeks and planned to preach through the Hebrews, I kind of in my head just skipped over. Ah, we'll just skip over. But then as I thought, I, 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 do wanna, I, I know who he is, I know about this person, and I think there's something in here that could be helpful for all of us. So we're going to jump in, everybody say Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Yeah. All right. Fun name, nobody names a dog that, though. Anyway, okay, so we're going to do a series in the book of uh, Hebrews, we'll go to the next one, and I'm just calling it, we used to, I used to call it Fix Your Eyes on Jesus, but I think during Christmas, plus the book even talks about this, Fix Your Hope on Jesus. Because uh, there's all kinds of things that we fix our hope on, whether it's money, relationships, politics, uh, self-efficiency, self-esteem, or whatever. And this, uh, what I've mentioned before, too, go to the next slide. This was written to a group of people who were Christians in Rome in the year AD 65, about that time. So this would have been 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. 
that the church was growing, people were following Jesus, supernatural things were happening. But in Rome, they were starting to get some hardship because they were Christians. Because you see, in Rome, it, it was cool to have all these religions, all these ways that lead to God. And so if you talked about this one-way Jesus and this unique man, Jesus, who was powerful and, and gave his life and he's the way to know God, that was kind of seen as, seen as in that culture, not cool. You know, let's all kind of talk like we're all going to God. And it's not a whole lot different than what we live in, right? So they were starting to experience this social pressure of, well, just, can we just water down a little bit and just let's just be religious people. Let's just be good people. Let's go through religious motions, be good people, you know, let's recycle, let's do all these good things, but let's not talk about Jesus so much, because that's kind of given us some social pushback. And eventually it gave physical persecution pushback. People were killed because they would not stop talking about Jesus in Rome by some of the Roman leaders. So understandably, these people were starting to feel, uh, the word I'll use is disheartened, they're like, is it, really, is it really worth it to follow Jesus? Or can we just be good people? Do we have to say that Jesus is a unique person? And why does it matter anyway? And, and so there was this, and you can imagine that it would be kind of like, oh, what's it matter? Can we just lower our hope a little bit? Can we just still be good people? And still think Jesus is a good guy? And you can imagine they were kind of probably thinking, well, why didn't you know, why isn't God intervening in these situations where we're feeling this social pressure and then persecution? Why isn't God intervening? And some of you have those same kind of questions with things in your life you've hoped for. They were simply hoping for probably a good life, but then things were happening where it wasn't a good life because of Jesus. They followed Jesus. And there's times in your life, and I'm my life, where I, you know, I, I just got to a Friday and I need a new hip, a hip replacement. And I'm thinking, oh, why can't I just pray and why can't you just take care of that? Well, he can. But he doesn't always do it for whatever reasons we don't know. But it's like, it is easy to get disheartened about, and that's a minor thing. Some of you have issues in your life that are easy to get hugely disheartened about. Relationship issues. People you love and know that are doing, making bad decisions. Your, your money is going downhill. The job You hate your job. You hate whatever. And there's, there's a lot of reasons why we're disheartened. And we're trying to figure out why doesn't Jesus do something for me? Because we've placed our hope in Jesus, but why isn't it working out? So, uh, go to the next slide here. So, it's all about hope. How do we have hope? You know, we have hope for Christmas, but Christmas Day doesn't make anything change in our lives. It's just a fun, it's warm, it's good, and it's time to honor Jesus. But how do we really anchor our hope in Jesus? So, let's just go over and jump in and read. And I'm, gonna, we're gonna, I'm just going to read through and give me some comments. I'll make a few conclusions at the end. And again, Melchizedek, is, he's not the star of the show, but he's a new character in the in the story, so to speak, but it's all eventually about Jesus. I had this up here before, but other things up here too, but more math anxiety is the greater than sign. The whole book of Hebrews is all about Jesus being greater than any other way to know God or be the kind of people you want to be. And it's not a, it, it, I, what I said before, it's either arrogant or it's true. And if it's true, we need to really explore it. So Hebrews chapter six, the writer says this, therefore we have fled to him, Jesus, for refuge and have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. Remember, it is well with my soul. In spite of what's coming on, it's well with my soul. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary 
Jesus has already gone in there for us. The picture there is in the Old Testament. They had to go through this back final curtain of the presence of God. Only the high priest could do that once a year. The average person could not experience the presence of God. It was just the, the way the Jewish religion uh, was set up. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He's become our eternal high priest in the order of, and here's where the word shows up that I kind of wanted to skip, Melchizedek. So it's like, who in the world is Melchizedek? Go on here. This Melchizedek was king of the city of Salem. city of Salem is now known as Jerusalem. All right? City of peace. Salem, Salam, Shalom. So he was the king of the city of peace, Jerusalem. His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. So he was the king of righteousness, king of peace. All right, you can already see some Jesus stuff kind of filtering in here. He was also priest of God most high. This was way back in the time of Abraham. The Jewish religion didn't even exist, but this guy knew God. We don't, it's one of those questions we have to figure out. You know, people can know God. In this case, he was a priest of God. He knew the God of the universe. This is before religion even started. When Abraham was returning home after winning a great battle against the kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. If you bless the person who blesses, usually the greater person. Melchizedek is blessing Abraham. Then Abraham took a tenth of all he had captured in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. So Abraham is honoring Melchizedek. Go on. The name Melchizedek means king of justice. It could also mean righteous, same thing. King of justice. King of Salem means king of peace. There's no record of his father or mother. So it first shows up in the book of Genesis. That's where um, Melchizedek showed up. It was 2,000 years before Hebrews was written. But these were Jewish people, and they knew this story. It's kind of like we know George Washington. We know Abraham Lincoln. Because we, if, if you're American, if you're not, you have your own cultural names you know. But the, the people in the book of Hebrews, they, they weren't confused by the word Melchizedek. It was like they knew who he was. They, they were good Jewish people who knew the Jewish Testament, the Old Testament. So in one sense, what could be confusing to us to the original hearers wasn't. Because they're like, we don't get what we And so he goes on explaining this, though. There's no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors. No beginning or end of his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. Go on. Okay, then the next part, I skipped 10 verses here. I didn't skip it because I was doing Mr. Stoltz either, all right? I skipped it because simply he's saying, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. He's greater than Aaron. So he's showing hey, there's something about Melchizedek. He's greater than just religious practices. So it just kind of goes on with that. Now we go on in verse 15. This change has been made. So he's basically saying there's a change now in how we get to know God. He used to know God through the priests like Aaron and all the high priests that Israel had during the Old Testament time, which was like 80 plus. They lived, they died. They lived, they died. All these new priests. But a change was made very clear to the different priest who is like Melchizedek has appeared. So now Jesus is being kind of explained through Melchizedek. Jesus became a priest, not by meeting the physical requirements of belonging to the tribe of Levi, which were Aaron, the priest, the first high priest, was part of. But not by meeting that requirement, but by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. But Jesus is established as this priest slash king. Because Melchizedek was a priest and a king. Not anywhere in Israel's history was anybody who held both those roles. So he's using something we all know about, Melchizedek, like we know George Washington or Abe Lincoln or whatever, in explaining Jesus in those terms. The psalmist pointed this out when he prophesied about the Messiah. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. 
on. And again, all these Hebrew people would have known this stuff. This was stuff he was just reminding them. Yes, the old requirement about the priesthood was set aside because it was weak and useless. So the law never made anything perfect, but now we have confidence in a better hope through which we draw near to God. Go ahead. This new system was established with a solemn oath. Aaron's descendants became priests without such an oath, but there was an oath regarding Jesus. For God said to him, the Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are a priest forever. So the key thing here is he's now saying Jesus is a forever kind of priest. They were used to a priest, lived and died, priest, lived and died, priest, lived and died. An interrupted kind of a sense of connection to God. Jesus is a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant with God. Next one. This is the last one. There were many priests under the old system. I told you there were over 80. For death prevented them from remaining in office. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever, and it kind of also means once and for all, completely in your life, to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. Read that last line with me out loud. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. Jesus is interceding for every single one of us now. And he always will. It's his sense of he's, he's always interceding. And he's not like begging the Father. Jesus is a co-equal with God. He is the, he's the, he's the king as well. So whatever Jesus asks the Father for, he gets on our behalf. So let me just highlight a couple things here. Go to the next slide here. Three things I want to highlight in this passage about Melchizedek. He's saying that Melchizedek was about justice and peace. He was a priest who knew God. He also was a king who had power. So he's trying to help them understand, this is Jesus. So Jesus will complete what he started in life. He said, Jesus, once and for all, is able to complete your salvation. Because again, they're used to a priest that did it every once a year could go in and that priest died. It was this kind of herky-jerky kind of approach to God. But he's saying, no, no. Whatever you're going through, if you feel like you're stuck and you're not sure if God's done with you yet, because I used to have times in my life where I thought, I think God must be down. I don't feel like I'm growing. He's not helping. And I was reminded over and again, no, what he starts and completes. What he starts and and some of you may be feeling that way. I was feeling that way kind of at a dark time in my life where sin had a hold on me. And I thought, he's got to be done with me because I can't break hold of this. But whatever he starts, he's going to complete you. And that's part of what the writer was trying to remind the Hebrew people and what I think God wants us to know. Whatever God started you, he's not done. He's not going to quit. And even though you think he's quit, he's not quitting. Because part of it is he is this forever priest who is always, always, always interceding to God for you. There's no break in the action. There's no separation. There's no pause button. You might think God's in a pause button in your life. He has not. There's no pause button. All right? Next thing, there's just three of these. Jesus prays for you all the time. And that, that may sound like a religious kind of sounding statement, but when you think about the stuff you struggle with, Money, habits, relationships, whatever, feeling close to God. And it says he's interceding for us all the time. All the time. For each one of us. He's not just praying for God. Pray for those people down there. I mean, he knows our name. He prays for Alan. He prays for Doug. He 
prays for Matt, he prays for Daniel. And Jesus, when we already know how Jesus prays for his people, who we see it in the New Testament. He's praying for peace and joy and courage. And he's praying for our purity. He's praying for our joy. He's praying for all this. That's what he's praying for. That's what he's asking God for. Now you might think, well, why isn't it happening? The other answers and other conversations about that, but we do know that Jesus is praying for us. He's asking the Father to complete in us and to finish in us. So you might think you're stuck in a situation that you don't see any forward movement. And it's interesting, Kristen used the phrase, I feel like I need to move forward in my life with Jesus. And you might feel like I'm kind of stuck or on the gerbil wheel. But Jesus is always praying for your forward movement and your relationship with God. He always is. He's not, he's not forgotten about you. Last one, last thing is this. Jesus has the power to make you righteous and bring you peace. The, the thing about Melchizedek was he didn't, a priest knows God, and he knows God to the people. He gains access to God. Melchizedek was also a king. Kings have power. So when he says Jesus is like Melchizedek, he's saying not only does Jesus open the way for you to know God in an intimate, personal way, he has the power for you to change you into the kind of person that is full of righteousness. Righteousness is not good behavior. Righteousness is relational health. Righteousness is a relational term. He's able to make you a relationally whole person full of peace because he has that power. And this is where Christianity, as we understand it, we have to, we have to affirm it is a supernatural religion. Christianity is not a moral religion. Otherwise, I would be standing up here just telling us all to try harder. Try harder, feel a little bit more shame, and then try harder again. That's not Christianity. Christianity is a supernatural religion where the promise is there is supernatural power and available to us to become to change. We have to be open to that. We have to be open to what God wants to do in our lives. But Jesus has the power to change you. He has the power to bring peace into your life and joy and wholeness. He has power to make you a person that can say, in spite of anything else, it is well with my soul. Those people, when you're around those kind of people, I'm drawn to people. There was an old guy, an old mentor of mine that I, I wanted to be around because it felt like he could have, he could be in the middle of a car accident, bleed to death, and he'd be singing it. I mean, he didn't, but he, he just said he, he was always just settled with who he was with God. That's what I want to be. That's what I always want to be. That I don't want to get knocked off my horse when things happen or financial things happen or whatever relational things happen. I fight with my wife or whatever else. I have a car. I want to be able to not be in denial. I mean, the nature of Buddhism is you're kind of in denial about pain and discomfort. Christianity is like, no, we, we, we are aware of these things happening in our life. But we have this centered core that we feel like we're loved by God. And I can be resting that. I'm not denying pain. I'm not denying the fact that my hip hurts. But I don't, it doesn't affect who I am. And so, but Jesus has the power to affect who I am. And then we'll close with this today. This is also from Hebrews. Um, so in light of that, one of the charges that this writer is writing to the Hebrew Christians in Rome under persecution is writing to the Bloomingtonian Christians in 2016, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we'll receive his mercy and we'll find grace to help us when we need it most. 
Mercy and grace are supernatural endowments of power in your life. Grace is the power of God working in you. So if you're an impatient person, if you have some sin issues, grace is the power in you to transform that, to make you the kind of person that's full of the life and peace and joy of Jesus. Grace is not just kind of kindness. It's kindness of God expressed in supernatural power inside your being to make you a person that has a whole, peaceful soul. So we, we're going to take communion here at the end, and uh, we also, as we've done this the last few weeks, we also, as we take communion, and I'll explain how we do that, some of the elders and wives are back in this corner, and we're back there to pray for anybody who wants prayer. And kind of around this kind of, sometimes we just need to ask God to do things in our lives. And simply, the question we'll simply ask you when we're praying for you is, what do you want Jesus to do for you? Which really means, what is it that you know you can't do by human effort that can only happen if Jesus intervenes? Supernatural power. And so, uh, five minutes or less, we pray for that. Um, I'm going to encourage you to go back there if you need to. For the first week we did it a few weeks ago, a, a visiting pastor went back there. I asked somebody to pray for me a few weeks ago. So it's not like, it's not just for the really, really bad off people. We're all desperate. We're all desperate to see the power of God in our lives. So I just encourage you that. I'm not trying to.